Hi guys, welcome to On The DL. This is episode 18. Today we have a special guest and we're going to be covering mindfulness with Magdalena. All over it. Now the beautiful Miss Magdalena has been a friend and a client of mine for quite some time now. She is the founder and principal psychologist of Curious Mind Psychology. I think it's over in Footscray, isn't it, Lena? Yep, you got it. Yep. We're all over this. So Magdalena, would you like to tell us a little bit about your approach to psychology before we jump into a few questions for our, our watchers? Sure. Um, well, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. We're really grateful to have you on. <laughs> Uh, where to start with my with my approach to psychology? Um, I'm a psychologist in private practice, and by trade, I'm a technically something called a counselling psychologist. So, what that means is I pay attention to the beliefs, context, relationship processes, and developmental experiences that play into our mental health and our well-being. You know how we um, relate to ourselves and how we relate to the people around us per se. So it's not really an emphasis on um, pathology, but rather what has happened to you that you might be experiencing um, you know, a sense of stuckness or you might be struggling somewhat in your life. And we really just try to get to the bottom of those processes together, not from like an expert client sort of position, but really collaboratively. Um, and I suppose working in private practice, I'm really about the individual um, rather than population level statistics no broad sweeping brushes. Um, we really focus on your unique constellation of factors and what's relevant for you. Yeah, I think people love just sometimes we feel lost in the crowd these days, don't we? And we kind of want to be categorized because it feels like it might be easier to be categorized. But at the end of the day, everyone's individual experiences are so, so different. And if you don't take it from that individual level, it's you're probably not going to get to a point of resolution or where you can manage things better for yourself hey definitely I think that you know focusing on the bigger picture can sometimes be a really convenient way to miss really deeply understanding ourselves and what's going on in our lives yeah I could definitely see that now Dak I think yeah. you've got uh, our first yes. Kick off question long, for the beautiful Lena. Long list of questions here. <laughs> Complex questions. No. Um, obviously, unfortunately, the pandemic is quite a, you know, it's, well, it's everywhere. Um, and it's affecting people's lives in different ways, some positive um, and some negative. And I wanted to touch on why you think and your understanding of it, why we're kind of more inclined to take the instant gratification approach uh, in regards to, you know, uh, food items or just things that have a negative effect on, you know, whether we have a goal in the future or more so how we feel in this moment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. Um, maybe we can start with a bit of information about how the nervous system works and how we regulate our emotions. And then we can think about maybe more individual approaches to figuring out mm -hmm. what's going on for you if you're making these types of decisions. Um, but I suppose, you know, COVID-19, this pandemic, a global trauma that it is, it's going to increase something called our allostatic load. And what that means is the chronic buildup of um, stress on the body and the wear and tear that that exerts. So allostatic load, you know, whatever you were dealing with before the pandemic, you know, now it's supremely magnified, you know, the weight's doubled, if not tripled. 
and it really reduces our resilience. So as our allostatic load increases, resilience decreases and something called our window of tolerance, which is our capacity to tolerate activation or stress in our body, you know, feeling a little bit overwhelmed or at a lower limit, the bottom of our window of tolerance, our ability to tolerate feeling, you know, bored, tuned out, vague and tired, that window really shrinks. And as soon as we go out of that window, we're in something called survival mode. So at the top, hyperarousal, too much, stress, panic, anxiety, then we go into fight and flight, which you might be familiar with, and our cortex, right? And our (laughs) cortex, which is our thinking brain, it shuts off. Suddenly we're making decisions based on avoiding pain or helping ourselves survive and conserve resources in whatever way, shape or form that we can. Same for the bottom, underneath our window of tolerance. If we've gone into hypoarousal, which is more likely if there's nothing that we can do to outrun the threat or fight off the threat, a la fight and flight, we're just going to say, right, just going to shut down, going to dissociate, disconnect from myself and what's going on around me and kind of go into a bit of a hibernation and flop on the couch and watch Netflix. The longer the pandemic goes on for Magdalena, is it more and more likely that people are going to be moving into that state? So I guess initially when the pandemic kicked in, we were all trying to find ways to deal with it. We had these elevated states, our our cortisol increased, but in a useful way at the beginning. And now we're not necessarily having those same responses. Is that just because of that cumulative effect of the stress? Definitely. So, you know, at the beginning, people were like, right, just going to get through this, going to learn a language, going to get super rich, you know, (laughs) going to have weekly socials on Zoom or whatever with my friends. But now as we're at lockdown 6.0, you know, it doesn't look like things are going to be changing anytime soon and we run out of resources and steam really quickly. So we're just going to go into our cocoon. And if we're in a survival mode, we're not thinking. So that means it's all about gratification. We're not able to connect with the consequences of our behavior. And we might not even want to, because it's about really trying to avoid those uncomfortable emotional experiences of anger, grief, you know, fear that might be happening because of what's going on with the pandemic. Definitely that- saw, uh, oh sorry, definitely saw a decrease in uh, Instagram posts where they were like, you know, what are you learning in this new lockdown? <laughs> you know, what are you, how are you using your time? And, yeah. and now it's just like, it's just gone on the downward spiral. And now I, I don't see any of those anymore. Yeah. Mm, chugging along. It's like trying to remain proactive mm-hmm. when everything in your body is telling you that it's not going to work um (laughs) becomes really really difficult so you know that as you mentioned before about allostatic load you know we can look at allostatic load from so many different positions but allostasis is what we're aiming for right so allostasis is where we produce a stress response but it's um i guess balanced with the stressor itself and our body is capable of using that stress response and then going back into balance really quickly afterwards. Mm-hmm. Allostatic load on the other hand is when we've got so much load <laughs> that we can't go back into allostasis. We can't get that balance mm-hmm. back whilst all of that's still uh, going on around us, mm-hmm. which puts us in a situation where 
not only is a lot of what's going on out of our control, we then don't even know how to manage the stuff that is within our control. It's it's really mm. interesting, isn't it, how our stress responses work? Mm, absolutely. You know, the mm. process of getting back to allostasis is yeah. through learning to manage your stress, but also regulate your emotions. So you can have ups, mm. but not going up into that fight and flight level. And you can have your downs without fully shutting down, dissociating and going into hibernation so that the swings end up looking more like this. Yeah. Even though you're having, you know, the waves, you're still in control. It's not erratic behavior or anything like that. Like, have you, have you found that, you know, obviously with the highs and lows um, and obviously people reacting in the moment in that fight or flight mode, um, have you seen that there's been an increase in people you know, having distorted eating in terms of emotional eating and stress eating or the opposite effect? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, and I think we can differentiate between eating disorders and disordered eating. You know, everyone who has a disorder will have some kind of disordered eating, but people who show disordered eating don't necessarily have an eating disorder. Yeah. Um, and depending, I mean, there are so many different types of um, eating disordered behaviors, but the more common ones that we might be seeing are, you know, eating restriction, um, binge eating, um, emotional eating, or, you know, those overcompensatory types of behaviors like mm. purging or over-exercising. Um, and depending on someone's temperament, um, but also at the individual level, depending on um, how they've learned, it's acceptable for us to, manage and respond to our emotions perhaps what we saw happening within our families for example then we might choose to engage in any one of those types of disordered eating behaviors but with the restriction I notice that happening more in people who are over-regulated so who really value control and order within their life you know more sort of type a sorts of personalities who have come from families where you must um, have a, well, be perfect in some way, shape or form. Yeah. So they're phobic of their emotions. They don't want to surrender to those impulses. And so they'll engage in those kinds of restriction behaviours to feel okay, you know, like their sense of self is still intact. I'm a worthwhile person. I can manage this in spite of the fact everything around me seems unmanageable. Um, you know, with impulse eating it might be more the other way so someone who um, has or is under regulated essentially so they might mm. come from families where they weren't necessarily modeled good emotion regulation behaviors that people were just um, free and easy and discharging you know that pent-up emotional energy around them and so they surrender to the impulse or the feeling they'll probably dissociate when they're trying to get rid of that um, uncomfortable feeling or impulse by you know standing over the counter tuning out and kind of getting as much food in as possible or they might be binge eating while they're also doing something else like playing a game or watching a movie or having you know alcohol or other types of drugs so they're not fully present for the experience but they're able mm. to alleviate that uncomfortable feeling by having a strong sort of sensory input and all those good endorphins that come from eating not so great foods or in not so great quantities for us. So I guess that's where food environment would play a massive role nowadays that it didn't back in the day. So 
with food being so accessible nowadays, particularly Uber Eats, those sorts of things, they're available anywhere, anytime, anyhow. Mm. So your immediate food environment is not the only environment that's playing in on you now, I guess. So whereas back in the day, it would only really have been what your family did that affected your food choices. Now the broader world is affecting your food choices as well. And then in that kind of a state, having so many options available, I guess, just gives you more opportunity to move in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. It's super duper convenient and you can do it sort of privately. That's very true, actually. So one of the things I talk to a lot of my clients about is when they're eating, if they are eating alone and hiding away whilst they're eating, there's usually something underlying that, some sort of shame or Mm. um, fear that underlies it. And trying to get to the bottom of that can be really challenging for people because they don't, probably for the reasons you were saying just before, actually, (laughs) like they're detached from it whilst they're doing it. So they don't actually recognise that that's a problem in the first place. So when you first bring it to their attention that that's not necessarily a useful behaviour, they're very confronted by it and it's difficult for them to then want to do something about it because then they have to admit that they do that and follow the process that goes along. Exactly right. To confront ourselves, it's easy to lie. Much easier, hey? Much easier. (laughs) It's easy to just not accept that you're doing anything wrong because as soon as you're aware of it, then you have to make a decision whether you continue it and you choose it or you change it. Yeah, that's it. We also, you know, we've, we see study after study in the nutritional health world that shows that the vast majority of people can actually lose weight effectively, right? But comparatively the number of people who are actually able to keep weight off is relatively small in in your opinion does this mean that we need to start looking more at strategies that combine psychology and nutrition rather than just nutritional education because the vast majority of the population we've got more access to information about food than ever before but the obesity Mm. epidemic is worse than ever before. So it doesn't feel to me like it's a lack of education. The more and more I look into it, the more and more I see this need for the psychological side of food choices, you know, decision fatigue, all of that sort of jazz to be taken into account when we treat people for nutritional issues, particularly people Mm. who are overweight but there's not much of a push for it. So people don't associate being overweight with psychology. They associate being overweight with seeing a personal trainer or a nutritionist, (laughs) but they don't really associate it with psychology. But if psychology is the limiting factor, if not understanding why you're making the decisions that you're making is what's stopping you from getting long-term progress and being able to successfully lose weight and keep it off, Do you think that there's an angle that we should be pushing? Do you think that there's a collaborative opportunity for nutritionists to work with psychologists? I mean, I know I refer clients to you, Magdalena, and um, health psychs that you've recommended. But what do you think would be the best approach to kind of get that all connected? 
Yeah, you know, health is multidimensional um, and to address one facet of that in isolation is to kind of cut yourself off at the knees. I think it always needs to be integrated if you want the change to be lasting. Um, and you can teach people skills and educate them until you're blue in the face, but <laughs> unless they have a clear sense of why this change is meaningful to them, how it's going to add value to their life. And not just because, you know, their doctor said that they need to lose weight or their partner said that, you know, they would prefer a certain body type or, you know, the industry that they work in would prefer if they looked a certain way. If they're not personally connected to that, um, then it's not going to fly for very long because if your behavior is driven by fear and avoidance of a negative outcome, yeah. then you're in survival mode again. So you're not in your window mm. of tolerance and you're not going to be able to connect to that. You know, once you've achieved your goal, for instance, you've lost 40 kilos and, you know, the world is applauding you and you're like, oh, excellent, well done. But now you've got no sense of what your life is actually going to look like because your whole life has been, well, the decision since you, um, made the choice to lose the weight for example has just been getting to that point with no mm -hmm. sense of constructing what you want your reality to look like following that and why that's important to you yeah that's I really think the oh sorry <laughs> no go for that I think um I think the approach of some coaches that I that, I, that I've seen um hopefully majority of them I think a lot of them have put a lot more effort into like what comes after which I think is amazing. Like I think, you know, look back five or 10 years ago and it was just kind of get, get to the goal, take the photos and you're on your way. Good luck with what you've done. See you later. And I, I think the approach is definitely changing. Um, yeah. Like you said, it's, I mean, it has to, I guess, to work as well. I think the bodybuilding industry is probably one of the examples where that hasn't really changed a huge amount mm -hmm. where when you're going into that industry, you are so focused on a subjective, like at the end of the day, you're, you're working on your physical appearance so that you can stand up on stage and have people subjectively decide whether or not you're the best person up there or not. And then you become almost completely reliant on that feedback to stay of value because it becomes who you are rather than what you do. Um, so it's probably a really good example of where that system is not working. Even when I used to work as a bodybuilding coach, I had a psychologist come out and talk to my guys um, post-comp because I couldn't, I couldn't give my girls or boys and girls what they needed to move mm. forward in their lives after competition because mm. they couldn't see themselves the same way as they were able to beforehand. Their value changed based on the fact that they were now a competitor. I wonder if there's, I don't know, even after I got the psychologist to come out and talk to my girls, it was very difficult to get them back into a headspace where we could teach them that they had more value than just their body. So you know how you were mentioning before, Magdalena, about people in a certain industry might feel more of a need to have that certain physique and therefore the outcome that they're chasing isn't for them. It's, you know, it's external to that. 
how would we go about maybe talking to people to get them to start moving on a different pathway? How would we get, how would we start a conversation like that with someone to get them to recognize that they might need to look at it from a different avenue? Uh, I think if you're suspecting that's what's going on, then the best approach is just to have an open and frank conversation with them about it. And I think the temptation, I know it's something that I've certainly felt um, at times, is to try and hold, you know, the responsibility and accountability for your client's outcome, you know, to locate that within yourself as the healthcare practitioner when it belongs with them. And, you know, if they're engaging on a journey that you can sense is probably for reasons um, that are about fear, you know, or are about avoidance or are just to achieve something sort of quick and short term, then, you know, reflect that, reflect the risks and, you know, invite them to do that work for themselves. And they could just laugh in your face and say, thanks, you know, okay. But you know, <laughs> that <with> them. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. At least you've done your, your bit. <laughs> I feel when I, uh, I always, uh, oh, not always, but I always kind of tell clients like, oh, you know, maybe you should, who are struggling with sleep to like, you know, maybe you should meditate. And I always feel a bit silly telling people to meditate because it's like, oh, it's a bit dicky, but like, I mean, everyone's, everyone's on board for it. I mean, I personally don't meditate, but I can see the value in it. But every time I like suggest it, like maybe you just do some light meditation and I always feel like a dick. (laughs) Like it's, I mean, some things sound really fancy and fairy, but like uh, that mental side of stuff, like it has to be, and it works. Like you, you got to put the effort in, even some of the things that you don't see the value in <laughs> work for others. Pardon the terminology, but all the hippy dippy shit, I think is what we're going <laughs> exactly. for. Exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, and it's funny because it only seems hippy dippy until you apply it and it works. And then it doesn't seem so hippy dippy anymore. <laughs> Mm. it's it's interesting you know sometimes I even think some clients can um, go through the motions of engaging you know with um, professionals like yourself and myself to get taught you know the things that they most likely might already have an inkling they need to be doing but if they're coming to the appointment and you know getting handed the skills and being made the suggestions and that's kind of like doing the work without really doing the work sometimes too it can be a way to you know avoid really thinking within yourself you know what's in the way of me taking control and initiative you know and ownership of my own um, health behavior change because I can Mm. place that you know with the person in front of me and they'll tell me about mindfulness which you know I know isn't for me for the 10th time because you know it's everywhere at the moment but <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, you know, there's a lot of research currently being done on the relationship between physical health and mental health. And of course, it's been interesting from uh, in, in the pandemic, gyms have been closed down for the vast majority of the pandemic. Um, every gym owner, every personal trainer has been pushing this side of physical health leads to improved mental health. Can you give us a little bit of a rundown, Magdalena, about why that's so? Why does physical health or, you know, exercise lead to such amazing um, improvements in mental health? 
Mm, um, I mean, there are so many benefits. Um, and I think that health, like we mentioned before, it's multidimensional and it's holistic. So if you're doing right by your body, likelihood is you're going to be doing right by your mind. Um, you can't really separate the two. But I mean, broadly, I think it's really helpful in supporting your mental health because it regulates so many of your basic and core physiological processes, your sleep your metabolism, your hormone profile, um, you know, it helps you to complete your stress response and get back to allostasis like we talked about before, so that you're constantly widening your capacity to take on, you know, more stresses and deal with them, it makes you more resilient. Um, but then at the identity level, you know, it's going to be helpful for you because you're showing yourself that you are um, disciplined, you know, not in that, you know, you're Mr. Commando or whatever, but <laughs> hey, I can trust myself, you know, I can rely on myself to look after my body and be a steward of my body, you know, I'm showing myself that I'm worthwhile and I have value um, through demonstrating, you know, that I'm going to care for myself in this way exercise whatever movement feels right for you yeah mm. I think everyone knows it everyone feels these things without actually realizing what they're feeling don't they like you walk into a session and you may really not want to train like <laughs> you turn up you're dragging your feet five minutes in all of a sudden you're complete you've done a complete 180 you know all of a sudden you're excited about training you're feeling good about the fact that you're mm. doing something good for yourself and then you walk away with the sense of achievement the extra endorphins like you were mentioning before sex hormones people don't under, people don't realize you know your sex hormones affect your serotonin and your serotonin mm. affects how happy you are you know we we always yeah. sort of we have a weird ability as humans to kind of separate all of these topics. So we don't think that the adrenals are dependent on the sex hormones. We don't think the sex hormones are dependent on the thyroid, da, 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 da. We separate it all out. We don't realize that it's all working as a team within us, guys. We need to keep everything healthy. We need to be very aware of everything. And the adrenals play a role so high up in the hierarchy, don't they, Magdalena? Like they they send such significant messages and they are they can be a significant limiting factor in all of those other aspects i've been doing some research on post-traumatic stress disorder lately and i had no idea how significant the impact of post-traumatic stress was on the adrenals um, and the long-term damage that it can cause those sorts of things it's just really interesting to see that there's this aspect of our life, this allostatic load that we do actually have the power to affect that then has the power to affect so many other things that come after it. It's just crazy. Absolutely mm. crazy. Mm. Trauma or post-traumatic stress, you know, their allostatic load is constantly much higher than everybody else's and their window of tolerance is going to be much slimmer only because they're in a constant state of survival. That's what post-traumatic stress is, the inability to leave that state of survival, even if you're in a state of safety. Mm. It's, it's a hard thing to think about really, isn't it? You don't ever want to think that anyone you know is going through something like that because it's hard mm. enough to deal with stress in the in the normal state. <laughs> All right, Dak, what else did we have on the list for Lena today? All right, we have some questions from the public. Mm -hmm. um, 
Question one, how does the mental stress impact your training performance? I would like to say a lot. <laughs> yes, that Dak and Lan can definitely better run down on the physical impact of stress on your training more than I could. Um, but psychologically speaking, everything that we spoke about just before, if you're stressed, you're not in your window of tolerance, your cortex, your thinking brain is not available to you, you're making decisions based on short term um, avoidance of discomfort and gratification and about conserving your resources and surviving. You're not really connected to your values or really connected to the consequences of you not um, doing the things that you already understand are going to be good for you in the long term. So it's just mm. going to, to derail your capacity to mindfully engage in a behavior that normally you would be happy to and able to. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Definitely agree with that. Me and Zach have had way too much fun chatting with you, Lena, and we've only got a couple of minutes left before we're going to get cut off. So I'm going to run the All very right. last, the very last question from one of our uh, viewers. Why am I more likely to make bad food decisions when I am tired or when I'm bored? Um, people hate feeling the emotion of boredom. It's not a fun emotion to feel or tolerate. And most of us have learned throughout our life that it's something that we should actively attempt to avoid, that it might be a sign of a failure, you know, in our life, that we're not doing things right, that it's not okay to feel this way. And so naturally we're going to want to do something more exciting, more novel to get away from the discomfort. So there's that, just the avoidance of an uncomfortable emotional state. But if you're tired or if you are bored and that's sending you out of your window of tolerance, then what we talked about before, your decision-making capacity is going to be pretty impaired. And so you're going to be, well, operating as though you were chronically drunk. Just think about, think about <laughs> it that way. You know, if you're fatigued, it's like you're drunk. If you're stressed, it's like you're making decisions like you are drunk because your thinking brain is not working. That's dangerous. Yeah, we've all experienced that. <laughs> <laughs> Magdalena, we are so grateful that we were able to get you on today. It's been an absolute joy having you. You're always a pleasure to be around, but we know that uh, our viewers are going to take a lot out of this. So I'm just going to plug you one more time. Magdalena Mills, Curious Mind Psychology in Footscray. Hit her up, guys. <laughs> she is absolutely amazing. Thank you again for coming on. Zach, did you have anything you wanted to say? No, no, that's it. We've got a time is of the essence. We've only got a few minutes left. Um, no, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Like it's been really insightful um, and hopefully we'll be able to have you on again in the future to go through probably the same stuff all over again, I reckon. Yeah, that would be lovely. Thanks so much for having me. And I just want to quickly add, you know, if anything that we've touched on today has been triggering in any way, shape or form, then I'll send um, Dak and Lan a little list of resources for you to help regulate yourself back and contacts for you to get in touch should you need any further support. You are amazing. Thanks again, Magdalena. Guys, uh, if you're watching at home, drop any questions, comments below and we will get back to you ASAP. <laughs> okay, everyone thank you again
Thank you.